Well, the Hughesmans are part of our church, and uh, their story is powerful, isn't it? We share it with you today because it, it, it represents what life is like. There are tragedies in life. There are really painful things that happen, and sometimes we have no good explanation for it. No way of, of understanding why it would happen. And yet, he said it, because Jesus is alive, there's at the very same time hope and expectation, knowing that God is still at work and God still has things planned. Now, if, you're, if you have a Bible here this morning, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. So grab that Bible, Romans 8. And if you don't have one today, we'll have the verses up on the screen for you. But find Romans. It's the sixth book in the New Testament. And find the big number 8. That's chapter 8. And we'll be in verse 28 in just a moment. Now, I'm wondering if we have with us this morning anyone who would classify themselves as an eternal optimist. Don't raise your hand, okay? But you know who you are probably. You're the person that always sees the glass half full. You're always taking those lemons that life gives you and making lemonade. And I kind of think there's probably some other people in here too. And, and you know an eternal optimist. You're married to one, or you work with one, or you're friends with one. And if you're really honest, their lemonade is starting to annoy you. Okay. The way that they look at life, we call it Pollyanna sometimes. And by the way, my wife's not here, but if she, she was here for a service. If she was here, she would say, I tend to be one of those people. But it's that optimism that's not really connected to reality sometimes. It's just, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And for a lot of people, that doesn't bring much comfort. I know that people get frustrated with this brand of optimism. And the reason I know that is because just take the old lemon lemonade adage and if you don't know it, it's, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? And if you go online, there's like a ton of adaptations of this, which are kind of humorous. So here's a few. When life gives you lemons, don't make lemonade. Make life take the lemons back. Or this one. When life gives you lemons, re-gift them to someone with a vitamin C deficiency. <laughs> I like that. It's creative. Here's another one. When life gives you lemons... Make orange juice and leave the world wondering how you did it. Last one. Unless life also hands you sugar and water, your lemonade's going to be lousy. <laughs> you see, what, what I think this illustrates is that uh, Pollyanna statements turn people off. Be, because it's not connected to reality. And I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christians are dismissed as Pollyanna or just we come together and we say all this great stuff, but we're disconnected from the way life really is. I mean, look, right now, we're all gathered together celebrating an event that happened over 2,000 years ago, and we're saying that it changed our lives. Some of us are even crazy enough to come here every single week because we believe that this book guides our life, that the answers for life are in the Word of God. And, and meanwhile, the world kind of shakes their head and rolls their eyes, and it's like, those Christians. Some of you here today might even wonder, you know, you decided to join us today, and by the way, I'm so very glad that you have, but if you're honest, you're not sure you buy the whole empty tomb thing? I mean, did that really happen? If ever there was a scripture that sounded Pollyanna, it's Romans 8.28, and that's our text this morning that we're going to be reading, 
on this Easter Sunday. So Romans 8.28. Now my goal this morning, though, is to show you this is very connected to reality. In fact, it is the greatest news that you have ever heard, and it's a solid rock foundation for your hope, for your expectation. And for some of you who might be new or guests here today, you might not know this, but we've been studying through the book of Romans for over a year now. And uh, we've, it's been like a treasure hunt. We found things all along the way. We've, we've discovered these jewels. Sometimes we're really convicted. Sometimes we're very encouraged. Sometimes we're both at the same time. I, I know a lot of people have had aha moments, like me, myself included, where it's like, wow, I never realized that before. So it's been a great study. And we've actually been in chapter 8 here for several weeks. So we've been in 8 for a little bit. And I want to give you some context because if you're newer, let's set it up and let's see what Paul has been writing about. Paul is the author here. He's writing to the church in Rome. And look at verses 18 through 23 with me. I'm going to read this. And if you follow along, Romans 8, uh, verse 18 through 23. See what God's word says here. And Paul writes this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is God's Word. Now, this paragraph of God's Word is straight up about life. I mean, it says it as it is, it recognizes that life includes suffering, it calls it bondage to corruption and and, and basically, it's saying there, there is no one that is exempt. No one goes through life and doesn't experience suffering. No one escapes the lemons. We all do. And Romans 8 is actually telling us it's not just humans. Yes, every human feels the brokenness of this world, but so does the animal kingdom, it says. So does the rest of the created order, the created world. It's groaning, it says, like it's in childbirth. It's waiting for something to come, something that is better than what we have right now. Now, to understand why this is, we, we kind of have to go back to the very first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I'll just summarize very quickly for you. Genesis 1 and 2 says, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that we see and the things we can't see. He created everything that's created, and he said, this is good. Perfect, in fact. Everything was perfect. And he made Adam and Eve, the first humans, to enjoy each other, and to enjoy the world around them, and most importantly, to have a relationship with their maker. But you come to Genesis 3... And you learn that Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan, who promises them some better life, some better existence from what they have, from what God has given them. Except the moment that they disobey, we read that sin is injected into the universe, and it, it makes its way to every corner of the cosmos, everywhere. Sin affects everything. And so now we live in a world that is beautifully broken. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's a lot of beautiful things out there, like this spring day here today. 
but it's a broken reflection of what it once was. And we as humans are born into sin. We're conceived in sin, Scripture says. From the moment that we're born, we are sinners and we feel it and we know that things should be different. And some of you feel it extremely heavy right now, today, because you've been suffering whatever you've been going through, and I might not know it, but you've been feeling the weight of this, thinking, man, this, I just, life shouldn't be this way. I mean, you take the Huseman family. You shouldn't have to bury your kid. There's something wrong about that. Life should not be that way. And so we feel this brokenness. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, and he certainly was not a stranger to suffering, because if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, he was shipwrecked, and he was beaten, and he was stoned, and he was left for dead, and it goes on and on. In fact, he lived every day with a handicap, the Bible says, his thorn in the flesh. And so Paul understood suffering. Not only had, he had, had things been done to him, he lived with suffering every day of his life. And so when he writes these words, and we come to verse 28 this morning, when we get there, we understand. Here's a guy who gets it. Here's a guy who understands life is tough. Life isn't all rainbows and butterflies. Life is hard. And so look at verse 28 with me. If understood correctly, this verse can give us solid hope. And I'll read it. Follow along. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. First thing that stands out in this verse, the first three words says, and we know. When it comes to the mysteries of life, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. Like, why does God allow the things that he allows? I can't know that. This morning I saw on the news that uh, in Sri Lanka, there's a bunch of bombings of churches on Easter Sunday, killing Christians. And we say, well, why does God allow this kind of stuff? We don't know the, the, the handiwork of God. We don't know what God is trying to accomplish. We can't. We see it from our perspective. But Paul says, here's one thing that we do know. So it kind of stands out. We just got done seeing in the text before this, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what the will of God is. And here we see, I, we know this. What do we know? Well, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And I, and I ask you this morning, do you and I really know that? Do you really know that? Because the, the reality of life tempts us to put a question mark at the end of Romans 8.28. And so it reads something like, all things work together for good? That's what happens in, in real life. We, we experience life and we say, really? I... So do you really know this? Do you really believe this? At first glance, this verse, it might seem like the motto, you know, it all works out in the end. Or, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Which is Bob Marley, for those of you who don't know. Okay? Or Hakuna Matata. But, but all these mottos are based not on the reality of life. They're positive statements, good vibes that we just try to feel better with. And when it comes to deep suffering, like really deep suffering, we, we kind of abandon these empty statements. They don't really help us. It's like a discarded crutch. It didn't really help us with our limp. And so we leave these empty statements. Now, I can clearly recall a time in my life where Romans 8.28 seemed empty. Uh, more accurately, there was a question mark at the end. 
Really, God? Growing up, I was in a home with five boys, and uh, my parents had seasons where they fought a lot. And there were good seasons and bad seasons. But on one particular occasion, I remember being in my bedroom, shutting the door, didn't want to hear the fighting anymore. I hear it going on, and I hear the divorce word thrown around. And, for, and this time, I really thought it was going to happen. Like, I was convinced as a kid, my parents were getting divorced. I know it. So I remember laying in that bed, and I could still picture it, like in my room, you know, Cherry Lane, Satterton, Pennsylvania. Um, I could picture my fish tank here. I had a little short excursion with fish and all that. So I remember just laying there, looking at the fish tank, praying to God, saying, God, because I was raised in the church, I knew the Bible. And I said, God, Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good. Like, how is this working out for good? I, I had this conversation with God, literally. I said, God... Really? How is a divorce going to work out for good? I don't get it. And so for me, it had a big question mark after it. Now, to understand why Romans 8.28 is not pie-in-the-sky optimism, we got to get the meaning of it, which Pastor Steve walked us through last week, and he did a really good job of helping us understand there are limitations to this verse. It doesn't mean what people sometimes think it means. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says there are boundaries to this verse. So here are a couple boundaries that you should know. And if you were here last week, it's kind of a review, but... One boundary is that this verse is for those who love God, it says. You can look at the scripture, it says, for those who love God. Well, what does that mean? Who are those that love God? I mean, I, you can meet a ton of people that say, I love God. Yeah, God's cool. I like, I like God. Well, when we've been studying through the book of Romans, one thing that has become painfully clear is that not a single one of us human beings are born with the ability to please God, to keep his law, to love him. No, the Bible says we're born in sin. And whether we're religious or irreligious, we are unable to please God. We're unable to love him as we should. The Bible says that we take the truth of God, we exchange it for a lie. The Bible says that we center our life around us. We're the center of our universe instead of God and Christ who deserves that worship. You know, we love ourselves way more than we love God. That's the way we are naturally as human beings. And so as we walk through the book of Romans, we've seen this this entire flow from our need to God meeting that need. That's what we've seen so far in Romans. So who are those that love God? Those Those who love God are those, it says, who are called according to his purpose, who God has saved, who God has changed. How do we become one of these people who love God? Like how can I be sure that Romans 8.28 applies to me? Like I want to walk out of here today claiming this verse, well, enter Jesus Christ. This is why we're here today. This is what Good Friday was about. This is what Easter Sunday is about. Jesus Christ, as you walk through the book of Romans, what you have is, hey, we are in need. We can't meet that need. Enter Jesus Christ. He's the righteousness of God. His perfect life, his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection paved the way for us to be those who love God. Our faith is conditioned on personal trust in Jesus. He is who he said he is. He is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. And what he did on our behalf on the cross, and then when he rose again, is the center of it all. Here are a couple of verses from Romans. Romans 1 says, Concerning his son, that's God's son, Jesus, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Romans 4 says it this way. It will be counted to us who believe in him, that's God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, that's our sins, and raised for our justification. Justification is to be right with God. So he's delivered up for our sins. That's death, crucifixion. And he's raised for our justification. He was resurrected for our justification. The cross, the resurrection, they are the essence, the core of the gospel. Jesus died in our place so that we who are sinners could not have that sin weighing on us. We could no longer feel the weight of of, of letting God down and disappointing God because Jesus bore the weight of our sin. And not only that, his righteousness, his perfection is given to us. That's called the great exchange. That's the gospel. That Jesus died in our place. We get his righteousness. So according to the book of Romans, those who love God are those who love God's way of salvation. Those who love God are those that love Jesus Christ because he's the sacrifice for our sins. We don't just say, hey, I love God. Yes, no. We understand what it means to love God. It means we love the way that God says we come to Jesus Christ. That we, we recognize I can't do it. I'm not a good enough person. I accept the sacrifice on my behalf for my sins. That's who loves God. Those who love God. Christ in the way of salvation. So that's the first boundary, and that is that it only applies, this verse only applies to those that love God. Second boundary here, God gets to define what is good. You know, you and I, we, we, we have in our minds what we think is, is good for us. You know, good marriage, good job, you know, good friends, children who look good and act good and we have a picture perfect in our mind. We, we know what we think is good. And the only problem with that is that God often allows our picture perfect to get wrecked, for, for our dreams to get shattered. And sometimes God knows that what we need is for our dreams actually to die and, and be buried and for God to raise up brand new dreams, and brand new dreams uh, that are in line with what he wants for us, which is to become more like Jesus Christ. That's really the dreams that he has for us. If you look at the very next verse, if you have an open Bible, verse 29, what's the good that he's working things together for? Well, many things, but most of which is this. It says we're going to be conformed to the image of his son. So for those that love God, all of our picture-perfect dreams, all of our hopes, none of them are as important as us becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's what God's doing in us. And sometimes he allows great, pleasurable experiences and high points in life. And we worship God and we say, God, thank you for this life that was born. Or thank you for this job promotion. Or thank you for this house that you've given us. We don't deserve it. And then other times he allows the roof to cave in on us because he wants us to cry out to him. And he wants us to realize that we need him and that more important than my success, more important than my happiness is my holiness for me to become more like Jesus Christ. One day, the Bible says, that we will be a clear reflection of Jesus. It's amazing to think about, right? We'll be glorified, the Bible says. So one day, you and I, if we're in Christ, are going to picture Jesus far better than we do today. A clear reflection of Jesus. That's what it's all headed towards. That's the, God, the good that God has planned for us. I want you to notice from this text, though, that uh, the Bible does not say that all things that happen 
are good. No, there's some bad things that happen. There's some really evil things that happen. Some days are just absolutely horribly no good. It happens. We as Christians are realistic. We're not Pollyanna. We're not pie in the sky. We understand this, that that life is difficult. We are realistic, but we believe in a different reality. We actually understand a whole other reality from what we we see and what we experience in this life. You know, some people in this world, they, they believe that all there is is what you see. Like, this is reality. What you can see, touch, hear, observe with the scientific method, like, that's it. When you die, it's over. There's no overarching purpose. There's no grand meta-narrative. There's no, there's no God directing, sovereignly controlling. No, it's just, this is it. This is all we have. There's no good and evil working together for anything. In fact, if we're honest, some people don't believe there's even evil and good. Like it's just randomness that is unpleasant or randomness that is pleasant. They don't believe in this God who would be, who would be sovereignly controlling things like Romans 8.28. And this morning, I want to push back on that. I, I want to push back on that and uh, I'll give you an illustration. Maybe it'll help. If you were to go to the country of Spain, they have a national motto, and it is plus ultra, which means further beyond. It's a very inspiring you know, motto, further beyond. But what's interesting is that's actually a reversal of a motto that they often said in Spain in the Middle Ages. And that motto, not going to try the Latin, but the translation is no land further beyond. So the Spanish in the Middle Ages had this phrase, if they, if they lived on the coast of Spain, they would say no further land beyond. It's even said that there was an inscription at the Strait of Gibraltar there. It said, no land further beyond. What they believed, they believed that the end of the world was just past Spain there. I mean, all you could see was water. That's all that they seemed to be. And so they did not believe there was anything else because they couldn't see it. They couldn't experience it. Until some explorers decided to go out in a boat. They had the technology enough to build boats that went over the ocean. And lo and behold, they come west and they find the new world, Right? And now they realize there is something further beyond. So they have to change their whole motto to further beyond. Now, there are some people who live like those Spaniards of the Middle Ages. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist, okay? If I can't feel it or touch it or believe in it, like with solid proof, then I I just, no, it's not there. Uh, if, If that's you this morning, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to go with me over the horizon just a little bit, and I want you to consider the resurrection, This morning, that's what we've been singing about. Just consider this morning the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, and by the way, I challenge you, I encourage you, I implore you, study it. Many men and women have studied the resurrection and found it to be historically reliable. There's a lot of stuff out there. Study the resurrection. If that's true, if Jesus really did resurrect bodily, okay, and if his, his spirit went up and then he had a new body that was connected to that spirit, he actually is risen. He is in a new body. If that's true, if that's true, that changes pretty much everything. That pretty much changes everything. God can bend the laws of nature. He can do what he wants. There's life after this grave. There's a God who's above us who's stronger than us, that we are going to have to answer to. It, it changes everything. And I believe that the resurrection is the exclamation 
mark on Romans 8.28. So maybe there's a question mark after Romans 8.28 for you because you, you look at life and say, man, the reality is causing me to say, all things work together for good? Look at the resurrection. The resurrection is an exclamation mark because it shows us this very thing, that all things do work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. If you want proof that, that God can hijack the bad and evil of this life and turn it into something good, look no further than the cross and the tomb of Jesus. Here we have the greatest evil ever. What could be greater evil than murdering Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, loved those he came into contact with, and yet he was murdered. That is pure evil. What would you call the day when that happened? The calendar calls it Good Friday. Good. And people might have often thought about the irony of that. Good? Like he was murdered. He was, it was senseless. It was terrible. You know, he didn't deserve it. Well, it's only good if you can see it from an eternal perspective. If you can step back and you can see what God is doing through these events, what was good? The ransom price for sin, that Jesus would die on that cross as a sacrifice and pay for the sins of those who trust in Jesus Christ. Victory over Satan and victory over death. This life out of death, beauty from the ashes. The resurrection of Jesus shows that the very worst thing in the entire universe can be turned around by God for good. And Clement of Alexandria said it this way. He said, he has changed sunset into sunrise and through the cross brought death to life and having wrenched man from destruction, he has raised him to the skies, transplanting mortality into immortality and translating earth to heaven. What hope does the resurrection bring to the believer? I've already mentioned becoming more like Jesus, but consider the resurrection this morning. One, we have a resurrected body promised to us. For all those that are in Christ, Jesus is the first fruits, the Bible says here. And that means that Jesus was the first to die, resurrect himself, and so we can know that those who are in Christ one day will be resurrected by him. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power living in us through the Holy Spirit. So he is the first fruits. That's what it tells us. That's what Easter is all about is that, yes, death is a horrible thing. And death is not how life is supposed to be. But there's a future for those that are in Christ Jesus. A resurrected body. Think about it. A new body. No aches, no pains, no aging. At least a few of you in here can probably say amen to that, right? A resurrected body. What else? Well, a, an inseparable love forever. What is this good that God's given to us? He loves us, and consider the resurrection in this way. Because Jesus raised from the dead, if you were to glance at the rest of this chapter... What it says is that he is now interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's a go-between. He's a mediator for us, between us and God. And so now we have Jesus as a mediator. Why? Because he died and rose again and is now at the right hand of the Father. The rest of the chapter says, what could separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? And it goes on to say nothing. Nothing can separate you and I from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's alive. 
because he is right now interceding for you. So, man, we're going to have a resurrected body. We have inseparable love forever with this God because of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. And then one more thing, a life of ultimate hope. Right now, the days that we have left, however many they are, we have this life of ultimate hope. How else can somebody like Kevin in the video, how else can he have hope after something as senseless as the murder of your child? Because the resurrection teaches us that there is hope. There is expectation. I find that so many people are trying really hard to take the bad in their life and turn it into good. They're, they're scrambling, doing whatever they can to try to drown out the bad with enough good stuff. So maybe it's climbing the ladder at work or fixating on fitness. Maybe it's reading another book, taking another adventure, another sexual conquest, whatever it might seem that would bring ultimate meaning. But here's the problem. We can't take bad and turn it into good. We cannot reconstitute the way things are and make them good. Best we can do is drown it out, try to enough enjoyable experiences so that, man, I don't, I don't think about the, the bad and the evil. You and I can't take bad and make it good. The only one who can do that, the only one, is the God who's sovereign over everything. If he is God who oversees the good, the bad, the ugly, every little thing that happens in my life, he can do it. He can take something like the murder of Jesus and he can take it and work it into something that is beautiful, that provides salvation for you and for me. On the day that Jesus of Nazareth was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, there was God working out his purposes. As Jesus is growing up a boy, just think with me here. This is the life of Jesus. He's growing up a boy. He's in his father's carpenter shop, and he's laughing with friends, and there's God with him working out his purposes. When Jesus selects his disciples, begins his earthly ministry, and by the way, he selected Judas, there's God working out his purposes. When, when he's preaching in Galilee, when he's, when he's healing the sick, all the things that he did, there's God working out his purposes, showing him to be this son of God. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, you might remember that account, he knows that when he does that, it's going to set off a domino effect in which the Sanhedrin is going to be very angry and eventually they're going to arrest him and they're going to kill him. And Lazarus seems to be a turning point there. Jesus knows that. In fact, you might remember, he ordains the situation. He, he waits to come, allows his good friend Lazarus to pass away. He says so that God can be glorified. Because when he shows up and he raises Lazarus from the dead, people see this is no ordinary guy. He's got to be more than that. All of these things, God is working out his purposes. When Jesus is arrested, scourged, mocked, there is God working out his purposes. When he, when he goes down the Via Della Rosa and he's, he's dragging that cross with the last little bit of human strength that he has left, God is with him and God is working out his promises. Even on that moment when the father turns his face away and the sky grows black because God cannot look at sin, still God is accomplishing his purposes. And on that long Saturday between Jesus' death and his rising day, God is still 
working out his purposes. Because on Sunday morning, God's purposes become clear, right? On Sunday morning, when Jesus walks out of that tomb, he fulfills his purposes. Now, it's all come to this. It's God's purposes working out. All things in Jesus' life and in his death and in his resurrection come together for good. They come together for good for those that, that love God. They come together for good of his kingdom. And Jesus right there is proof to you and I that even though God allows evil in our life, he's working things together for good. Consider the cross of Christ and consider the resurrection. You might not like the idea of God up in heaven sovereignly, like dictating that we experience bad things and and, and letting us experience those. You might not like that idea of a sovereign God. I don't know. Maybe that offends your sensibilities. But I want you to also consider that this sovereign God is at the very same time sacrificial. This sovereign God who is, yes, in control of every good, bad, and ugly thing in my life is the very same God who sacrificially laid down his life on the cross so that all who trust in him can be saved. So we have a sovereign God, yes, but we have a sacrificial God as well. Does God allow hellish things into our life? Yes, he does. But you got to remember that the Son of God went through literal hell so that all who trust in Jesus Christ can be saved. So we got a sovereign God, yes, and yes, he lets things happen in our life, but he's not untouched. He himself went there. He himself went through hell so that we could know him. If a God will go to that length, if a God will take on human flesh, become a human, live, and die for us, I think he's going to provide for us all that we need, and he's going to do good in our life. Romans 8.32, just a couple verses later from what we're looking at here, says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus Christ, give us all things? Notice that, all things. All things work together for good. If God did not spare his own son but he sacrificed him for you and I, will he not also give us everything we need and will he not make things in our life be good according to his definition. Some of you know who Elizabeth Elliot was. She was married to a man named Jim Elliot. They were missionaries in Ecuador in the 1950s. And you might also know that Jim Elliot went away from Elizabeth for a trip to go reach a new people group, a new tribe that they had not reached yet. And when he gets there, him and some other missionaries are murdered. They're killed. They're speared. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot actually spent a couple years after that with that exact tribe, sharing the gospel with them, building a relationship with them, made an impact on them, even though they had killed her husband. So this is the woman that, that I'm going to quote here. And she writes these words about the, about the moment when her husband was late in coming back, and she started to think the worst and realized he, he might not be coming back. And she's, she's going before God, and she's looking for some comfort, for some peace, She actually recounts that she goes to the passage in Isaiah that says, when you walk through the waters or through the fire, I will be with you. This is what she read. And then she says this, I realized then that God was not telling me that everything was going to be fine, humanly speaking, that he was going to preserve my husband physically and bring him back to me. But he was giving me one unmistakable promise, I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God. 
He is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we come back again to the terrible truth that there is suffering. She says this, the question remains, is God paying attention? If so, why doesn't he do something? I mean, here are missionaries dedicating to, to the Lord, and God lets them get killed? There's Christians in Sri Lanka worshiping today that are killed. Why doesn't God do something? And she goes on and says, I say he has, he did, he is doing something, and he will do something. The subject can only be approached by the cross, that old Rugged cross, so despised by the world. The very worst thing that ever happened in human history turns out to be the very best thing because it saved me. And so God's love, which was represented, demonstrated to us in his giving his son Jesus to die on the cross, has been brought together, notice this, has been brought together in harmony with suffering. It's only in the cross that we can begin to harmonize this seeming contradiction between suffering and love, and we will never understand suffering unless we understand the love of God. There's a woman who understood suffering, like Paul, and yet she still can, can worship. Why? Because she sees Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. She says, well, if God gave me Jesus... If he forgave my sins and he didn't keep Jesus from me, then I think I can trust him to give me the things that are good. Because in the midst of suffering, you've been there, right? In the midst of it, there's not a lot that you know. You, 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 it's, a, it's a gray, it's foggy sometimes. The only thing you can grab a hold of as, as like a handle is this one truth, that God is working all things together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. How do you know? How do you know that's actually true? Because of Jesus, of his life, of his death, and of his resurrection. All things work together for good in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so we know that this is true for the believer. That is the exclamation point. The exclamation mark on Romans 8.28 is the resurrection. Let me finish by speaking to believers first. If you're a child of God, you've trusted in Jesus Christ, submitted your heart, your life to him, won't you today remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Won't you grab a hold of that handle and as you walk out of here, whatever you're going through, or if in the next month or a year you go through a deep, dark trial, grab a hold of that handle and say, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing. I'm not okay with it, but I know that you gave Jesus Christ for me. I know that the worst evil ever the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, you worked it together for good. So I'm just going to trust you, though I can't see. I'm going to believe that this is true. His empty grave remains to this very day. And they debate which grave it is. I don't know. But I know one thing. They never found Jesus' body. Okay? His grave is empty. And it is a testimony. That empty grave right now is a testimony. And what it shouts very loudly is, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. What it says, brother and sister, is that for every sin failure that you have, there's an empty grave. For every prodigal child, there's an empty grave. For every cancer treatment, there's an empty grave. For every funeral, there's an empty grave. 
God is making you more like Jesus Christ. So we look at the things in our life and we say, I don't get it, but I know you're working something together for good, God. And I trust you. I trust you with that. God is going to give you a new body, a perfect body, no suffering, no sickness, no struggle. And he's going to give this earth a complete makeover, new heavens, new earth. He's given you right now inseparable love. And nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Not even death, the Bible says. One day, God's going to make everything new. Or as J.R.R. Tolkien said, one day he's going to make all sad things untrue. That's what God's going to do. Now before I close, I want to speak to somebody here who might be a not yet believer. Maybe you've been a little skeptical. Maybe you've been religious or maybe you haven't been religious. I don't know. But you've struggled to to dedicate your life to Christ and submit your whole heart and your whole life to Jesus. Maybe one of the reasons is because you've thought, I just don't know if I can worship a God who lets the kind of stuff happen that I see around me. And the reality of life has caused you to have serious doubts. Maybe that's your story up to this point. Maybe you have experienced the brokenness of this world and you've tried to drown out the bad with good. That's been your life. You've been trying to experience enough good to make you forget about the bad. And you've spent your life tirelessly doing that. But if you're honest, there's times where you realize it's not enough because that bad is still there. I still feel it. And I can't make that bad any, any, any different. You don't need a God who's just going to ignore the bad. You need a God who can take the bad and work it somehow to make you more, you more like Jesus Christ. Somehow he'll take that bad. And though it may still seem bad till the day you die and is bad, he works it into something good. Won't you this morning cry out to God and trust in Jesus Christ? You know, you might not be able to see him. You might not be able to feel him or hear him. It's like those Spaniards from the Middle Ages. You can't see it, so it doesn't exist, right? Well, what if it does? What if he is real? What if Christ is alive? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that we have limitations? Those Spanish people did not have the ability to make boat jet and travel, and so they were limited, and so all they knew was that world right there. We as humans are limited. We can't possibly understand the supernatural. We can't, we can't get there, and so it makes sense that there would really truly be a God who is over us. And there is a Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Won't you cry out to him today? There is never any better day to receive Jesus, to submit your life to him than today. And especially when it's Easter. What a great day to say, okay, God, I'm sick of trying to run my life. I'm sick of trying to drown out the bad with good. Will you just make something good out of it? Will you take me? Will you use me? Romans 8.28 is certainly not Pollyanna. No, it's brimming with real hope, real optimism. Why? Based on the foundation of Jesus Christ's resurrection. We don't just come here on Sundays and pump ourselves up with these, you know, kuna matata type things. No, this is actually real. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus. And so I want you to know this morning that when you walk out of there, out of here today, You can believe Romans 8.28. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. Will you trust him this morning? When the lemons come in life, don't try to make lemonade. Just run to the one who takes sour and sweet, salty and everything. 